Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Today on the show, John is talking to Lloyd Lobo, who co-founded Boast, a software application designed to simplify the process of applying for R&D tax credits. Now, after bootstrapping their first few years, Lloyd and his partner sold the majority of the business in 2020 to Radeon Capital for $23 million. Now, one thing before we jump into the episode, midway through, Lloyd mentions a picture of himself shot before and after he sold his company. Now, you may be surprised at the absolute amazing transformation, so I put the photos side-by-side on Lloyd's episode page, which you're going to be able to see and find at builttosell.com. I truly hope you enjoy Lloyd's story of bootstrapping his way to a $23 million exit. Enjoy. Lloyd Lobo, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Thank you for having me. Long-standing fan. I'm super excited. I have like goosebumps here because coming out of university, Built to Sell was the first, one of the first books I read. And I just found out that it was a parable. I thought it was your story, but that's what I connected with. And that was my my first exit story I have ever I had ever heard. So I'm super. Oh wow. Pumped. Well, that makes me feel amazing. Uh, and I'm thrilled. And now it all comes full circle because we're going to talk about your company, Boast.ai, and, and the amazing exit you had. I want to get into the story, though, because it doesn't start as a high-flying tech company. How did you get in the business of R&D tax credits? Like, Tell me the story. How did this start? Globally, hundreds of millions of dollars given in R&D tax credits to fund businesses, cumbersome process, long time to get the money and prone to frustrating audits. So we said, we'll streamline the process and, and very simple. We'll get you more money faster for less time and risk. We'll take over the headache so you're not messing around with your important staff to put these reports and everything together. We'll get all your data. We'll file it. We'll defend you in the audit. And we'll make sure you get the money as soon as possible. So that's now, how there the are a lot of R&D tax credit consultants who charge, you know, oftentimes like a success fee if they get money. How were you guys different or were you? We were, to be honest, we had a, we were just starting out. We hadn't put like a line of code in. The goal was, can we get customers, right? I firmly believe now I had only worked at startups before. So after graduating, I worked at a startup making cold calls. Then I moved up the ladder from uh, from from making cold calls to head of growth and marketing and product. And I only saw those startups fail. Every single one of those startups failed. They didn't work out. So we're like, you know, why don't they work out? These, what, is, what is the common path here, which is considered conventional today in Silicon Valley, is you have an idea, you go raise money, and then you build something, and then you sell it. But traditional businesses, which is 90% of the world, we don't have the liberty to go and raise money to then build something to then go and sell it. We're based on getting customers who pay for it. We're based on building profitability right from the get-go. So we said, why don't we just do that? So we went and started cold calling to get customers. That was step one. We started picking up the phone and cold calling people. Nobody would talk to us, man. Imagine you got two guys who they had never heard of competing with big four accounting firms and you know so many consultants with, with years of experience. But the one thing we had we had a lot of relationships in tech in Silicon Valley as a function of running around. And so we said, you know, why don't we 
just bring people together. We need advice anyway, as unsuccessful founders, advice on tactical advice on how to get first customers, how to get your first employees, how to build your marketing team. We need this tactical advice. And at the time, podcasts weren't really popular on the, in the tech space, in the entrepreneurship space. Conferences were talking very high level, aspirational things. They weren't talking tactical stuff. So we said, why don't we just invite the people we know, successful entrepreneurs, to share this knowledge, but not only share it with us, we'll also open it up to the community. So we'll invite other people. So we invited one founder to give a talk on a specific topic at the co-working space we were working out of. We invited people, 10 people showed up. Now there's a great learning there because those 10 people who showed up, we didn't try to sell them anything, but they walked away a great deal learning from the experience from that entrepreneur, right? Like, like we're doing this conversation right now, plus then having one-on-one Q&A with them asking about your queries, your questions, your issues. So this has nothing to do with R&D tax credits. This is like on the side. You guys are like ADHD. Like on one, you're like R&D tax credits and then you're doing an event? Like, what, what, like, how, how, like, okay. So was this a sort of side hustle, the event, or was it, how did it kind of coordinate with the R&D tax credit stuff? So the, the theme, the, the thesis there was our mission, our vision at, at Boast was to help entrepreneurs, help innovators become successful, right? Every dollar spent in innovation returns 20 to the economy, vaccines, robots, clean drinking water. Yet most innovators fail. So our goal was to make them successful. How do we do that? By bringing them money. But what do they need to do with the money? They don't know. You got a bunch of cash. How do you spend it? So we said, we'll bring them the knowledge and know-how on how to spend it, right? From, from the people who've done it before. It sounds and, like and the Simon Sinek start with why, like why is very high level, how and what is exactly is very different. So, so our purpose was enabling innovators to change the world. Our how was bring you money to fund your R&D and bring you the know-how to execute your R&D. And, and, and so we said, okay, this will be the know-how. We'll bring somebody together. But you know what that did effectively? It's, it's a classic case if, if anyone has read uh, this book by Robert Cialdini, which is called um, Influence, right? It is a, it's a classic case of, of the book Influence because what we were doing is giving before we get. We were building influence through reciprocity, right? We started bringing these people together who would learn a great deal from a speaker of influence who was an authority. We would not sell them anything. Now, all of a sudden, you got two guys who have zero brand got the brand rub of the speaker because as a function of that speaker coming, and we've had some massive speakers like the CEO of Twilio and so Marketo over time. When you say we've had this event started to take on a shape of its own and it's something you've continued on all this time, right? Exactly. So, so the first event we did, we called it just pizza nights. 10 people showed up. Then we're like, this is great. People wouldn't pick up the phone to talk to us. They would slam the phone on us. But we host an event advertising this speaker and we cold emailed everyone and 10 people showed up. It's a win. At least we got conversations. What were we trying to optimize for really is conversations, right? Because conversations is the leading indicator of people buying from you. Right? You, but how did you guys finance the, the growth of the event? Because I guess 10 people in a co-working space, it's cheap and easy. We, 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 we already pay, we were paying for the co-working space, right? Already. And we booked, the, we, we booked the small event space, the meetup room for free. And we financed pizza. 10 people, like $30 of pizza. $40. Okay, so how does it go from there to like, like, a, like a, how does, I need to go 
from the event to the R&D tax credit stuff? Like, how does that? So we did, we started, that event was successful. We got a whole bunch of conversations. People figured out what we did and they're like, hey, these guys are good guys, right? So it, it filled our pipeline a little bit as a function of, of, of bringing people together for that event. Then we started doing more events and consistency is key here. We kept doing these events and every time like from 10 people, word of mouth would spread, 20 people would show up, 30 people would show up. And finally, we end up doing this one event where 200 people showed up for a typical 20, 30 person co-working space meetup. And they filled like we had to move apart the tables and everything. We hijacked the whole co-working space. And then the, and then, and then the GM of the co-working space is like, guys, you guys are now running a full-blown conference in the co-working space. You can't do this. That evolved into our community called Traction, which is bringing innovators together to learn from one another to grow their businesses. That evolved and, and took a life of its own. Today, we do major conferences in different cities. We do meetups. We have a podcast. We have a YouTube channel. But all of that started from these meetups. And you know what's funny is when we were doing the deal when, when it, with, with the Radiant Capital, with the Growth Equity Fund, there was one chart that showed the, our revenue going up and to the right to 10 is a, and another chart showing the number of events we did. How did you go from, so the conferences are thriving. I, I get that. They're growing. Um, take me through the creation of both the, the, you know, the, the AI-enabled R&D tax credit tool. Like, explain that story. Definitely. So the first step was getting 10 customers. By the end of the year, we had 20 customers. That, These are, you're doing it analog. You're just doing, you're, you're submitting. We're doing this manually. Like it's called yeah. Wizard of Oz, right? You present that you have, you have some technology or promise of technology, but behind the scenes, you're doing it very manually. And this is, this is really important because the thing is, if we went and built software on day one, and if nobody wanted it, we couldn't sell a single customer or we couldn't figure out the workflow, we would definitely burn through a lot of cash and we would fail. Now, what did yeah. this cost us? This cost us maybe a few hundred dollars in pizzas and, and a cell phone bill. And we were manually doing this. And that was the thing, right? So we used that strategy to effectively bootstrap to almost 10 million in revenue. We had a couple million in revenue before we wrote a line of code. And if you look at it, UiPath, which, is, which you know, had one of the biggest IPOs, that's how they started. Basecamp did this as well, is like sell a service. It's a bad word. revenue. I'm assuming you're you're characterizing the entire R&D tax credit as revenue from which you get a percentage. No, no, no. I'm, ca I'm, I'm ca when we when we did the fundraise deal, that's what we were in terms of our take, our revenue. I see. Okay. And what was your split on the on the tax credit? So the the more we get the customer, the smaller our fee get. They started believing in the service. We were getting them the money without any headache. They were getting more money compared to other consulting firms, and they were getting it faster without the audit risk. So that started to happen. Our customers wouldn't leave us. The word of mouth started to spread. We started to do more and more events. But what it ended up doing once we got to like 50, 60, 70 customers is by doing that work manually, we got to learn the exact step-by-step -step process to deliver them outcomes, right? So we knew now Alex coming from a big four firm, what their process was. Their process was come in at the end of the year and ask the company's CTO or CEO, tell me what you did in R&D last year that meets this narrow criteria. How many people remember that? Nobody. 
I, I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. How am I going to remember what I did in R&D, especially as a, as, a, as a busy CTO or CEO? So that was the process. That was the process over and over again. What we started doing, our manual process was collect the data. The data exists in the system. Collect the data, at least proactively, at least once a month or once a quarter. Have a conversation with them, analyze that data, and then proactively build the claim and the reports and then file it. As a function of that, our claims started getting larger than the competition. Our audits were a slam dunk. We were near 100% accuracy on the audits or success rate on the audits. And we could then finance those claims also saying, hey, you know, the government takes you so long to pay, but our success rate is good. So we can front load you the cash. So why wait for the government to pay you? Use both, get your money now. So understanding that workflow is key because now you know exactly what to automate to scale the business. So we were collect- I just want to pause for a second, Lloyd. You mentioned something interesting and I want to double click on it. You said that you started to finance these deals. So traditionally in R&D tax credits, as I understand it, you know, there's a consulting project that the consultant comes in, they file the paperwork, the government takes months to adjudicate it. And then, you know, a check comes in and the consultant gets a share of it. In your case, you were doing that, but instead of waiting many months to get the money, you were fronting the money. How did you get the cash flow to do that? So we got the cash flow to do that by, again, selling stuff before we have it. We did a deal with Brevet Capital and they made available a line of credit for $100 million. Now, the, the benefit of that Brevet deal was it happened almost in parallel to our, our, our growth equity round, which was about $26 million or so with the Radiant Capital guys. So that social proof led to it. But we had a lot of customers and we our, our insight and the technology we had started to build and scale was giving people lenders the confidence that these guys can underwrite R&D claims. It's now at a point where plug in your tech and financial stack to boast, even before the end of the year, as you use it every month or every quarter, will tell you what you qualify for and will front load you cash. So you're getting the money 16 months ahead of getting it from the government. So you when both you go from a like analog filling paperwork to boast Dot AI. So Boast.ai was incorporated in 2017. So here was the, 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 the learnings. We started the company in, in 2012, January 2012 or so. And in parallel to doing Boast, we did another AI company called Automatically, which was a chatbot built on Zendesk in 2013. That failed for a variety of reasons. We couldn't, basically, we couldn't get the tech to work. We launched with thousands of users. And, and we couldn't get the tech to work. It was spitting out gibberish. It's, it's what you might call now like um, how ChatGPT or Intercom works. Looks at inbound customer queries and responds like a real human. Then after I did another company, which was an AI sales assistant, which was venture-backed, uh, raised $6 million. It was incubated by the investors. And um, it was basically before the call, it prepares you for the meeting. During the call, it guides you through the selling process. And after the call, it updates your CRM and tells you what to do next. Couldn't get that working either. That died with 10,000 users and burned through 6 million in cash. All while Boast was going on as a consulting firm. After that incident, we're like, you know what? Let's give up this chase to find the sexy thing, the sexy unicorn business. We have a company where people are paying us money to get them money. Let's just build the technology based on our learnings from failing those two AI products. 
and and build that. So 2017, we incorporated Bulls.ai. .ai wasn't even a thing. We easily got the domain, of course. And um, and we we you know the, the the meetups we were doing had now evolved into traction conference. And so we announced it at the traction conference, and uh, and that was the journey. So when you look at it, right, any manual service is digitizable. It's automatable if you think about it very calmly. There's four or five things you do. Like in our case, we collect data. That is step one. You need to collect data. Now, if you're collecting that data with shoeboxes and emails and Excel, the very first thing you can do is build integrations, right? You can, every tool a company uses, let's say for project management, they use Atlassian or they use Asana. They have APIs. For, for, for finance and payroll, they may use QuickBooks. They have APIs. You can pull that data in automatically. The next step is, you got to write code to normalize that data because the financial data is zeros and ones. The technical data is unstructured data. It's, it's all over the place. So you got to flat it, normalize it. The third step is you analyze that data to make sense of it. Hey, where does this go? And what does that do? And, and then the last step is you apply workflow. Okay, now this data goes in this field and this box and this calculation, right? There's four steps. Data, data, data integration data normalization, data analysis, and workflow, if you think very calmly. Now, if you look at the steps we were doing, and I mean, we, were at, we, come, we come from an engineering background, but we were doing this manual work. What was step one? We were collecting this data manually. Big four accounting firms were coming in a few months before filing after the end of the tax year. We were going monthly, quarterly. So we're like, how do we now make this data collection real time so we're not badgering them via email and phone calls? Bingo. Just Give them a front where they plug in and integrate their systems, and we'll pull the data in automatically. Okay, now we got to normalize that data so we can make sense of it. And now based on that data, we know who worked on what projects, what project mapped to what payroll entities, and, and, and what they are, what qualifies, what doesn't, based on proprietary algorithms we wrote. And now we're like, the next step is what forms to fill and where to file it, right? And what the, what the IRS or CRA gets is a nice audit log that's, com that's systematized and compiled. So now we had this underwriting system built based on this underwriting system. We're like, what is the success rate? Hundreds of millions of dollars dispersed to companies at a 99 point some odd percent accuracy. And we have all the data on each of these companies in our system. So you don't have to comb through Excel and whatnot. So when we showed them to Brevet Capital, which is, which is a multi-billion dollar debt fund, they were like, yeah, this is a no-brainer. You're selling like $100 bills for $10, $20, and companies want their money sooner. They don't want to wait 16 months to get it from the government. This is a low-risk thing because it's a government-backed security. So why so wouldn't they gave you a, a, a credit facility, yeah. which enabled you to tell your customers, look, we can get you the money up front. Exactly. exactly. Got it. How did, okay. So that makes sense. How did your business model, in addition to funding the, uh, you know, fronting effectively the, the cash, how did your business model change when you moved online. I mean, did you charge customers as like a SaaS model, a monthly fee for access to the platform, or is it still just um, a commission effectively on what you submitted? So we always operated with the assumption that customers are looking for an outcome. That was our mo that was the biggest that was the impetus for the business. We make money when you make money. So we kept that business model. 
even even when we added in the lending piece, we baked it into that fee. So they're paying one fee, they're dealing with one person. And it's recurring. Like I look at it as usage-based pricing, which has taken huge effect right now, right? So if you are proactive with the customer in identifying their R&D proactively through the year, that means their claims will get bigger. And if you can front load against those larger claims, that means they'll spend more money in R&D. As a function of that, every year they spend more and more on R&D and their R&D claims get bigger and bigger and bigger and they're locked in, right? Integration is one great way to build a moat around your company. You make it sound so easy. Were there other competitors doing the same thing? The best part is this is what I love about chasing unsexy businesses. You know, the number of people who said to me and Alex that, man, it's too manual. It's a service, like it's so labor intensive. How are you going to scale? And, and I always say like, ignore the naysayers, right? Don't build somebody else's definition of success, particularly some investor who's never started a company, doesn't know the sacrifice of blood, sweat, and tears. So there were takes. no competitors? We, we, didn't, we didn't come across any competitors, but once we announced the fundraise, there were a couple of startups that came out of the woodworks and, and, and raised, uh, raised money. But so there weren't any competitors doing what we were doing because everyone was doing it manually. And this is the beauty of unsexy businesses, right? Like it's in an industry that people think is very small and, and it's largely manual and it's done by, it's in a regulated industry. So this is, this is how I like, personally like to attack businesses. It's in a boring, unsexy industry. It's a recurring need. It's largely manual. And if it's regulated, even better because like the big four accounting firms chasing it. So that was the beauty of it. And we, we didn't find any competitors. So we created the market of R&D tax automation. And, and a lot of articles about us written in the space because we went from saying, hey, why do you chase R&D tax credits to fund your business? So why wait to fund your business? Use both, get your money now. And so I love it. It's amazing. So that, that so was the me, market we 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 had created, basically. So tell me about what as what triggered you uh, to do the Radiant deal. Was there was there something that that caused you to to because uh, I mean you're you're it's almost a license to print money. You, you may some people might say, well, why did you sell uh, a portion to, to an to, outside firm? What was your decision making there? So what happened was, and you know, this is what I say, this community we build, and I talk a lot about building community for your business around your ICP, um, is how the Radiant guys came. Because as a function of hosting these events, a lot of VCs would come to our events. Now, one thing Alex and I aligned on is we didn't want to take venture capital because one, I had only been a part of failed startups before, right? And you, I've seen, because I've had board purview at every one of them as running being on the growth leadership team, being a head of sales or head of product. So I'd seen how it went and how stressful it gets. And, and what my wife had always told me was, Lloyd, it's been a huge struggle for you guys to finally make money after multiple failures. Like we did automatically that failed. Did Speakeasy, that failed. Then we did an events company because we were doing events and we were really good at it. We had a co-founder who ran away with all the profits, a quarter million bucks. He locked us out of our accounts. And he announced a new conference in a different name to our list. Our only respite was because he took that money to announce another conference and paid vendors, we could file an injunction on him. We end up walking away after paying lawyer fees, $50,000 out of that 250K paid in installment over six months. Like the money, it didn't even feel like anything. 
So finally, things started to get good at Boast and, and we were making money. And then the VC interest obviously starts to come, right? Because more and more customers use you. And my wife always maintained one thing. If you build another zero-sum game and it fails, you're getting a job at like a Salesforce or Oracle or some, you know, S&P 500 stable company. I can't keep paying the bills. I can't. <laughs> that keep was the directive from on high. <laughs> that, that, that's like the directive. She's like, I've been working since residency. You started the company since, since I was in residency. It's been 10 years, one after the other. Failures, living in the Bay Area is not cheap. Uh, you, you're going to have to find a job if you build somebody else's zero-sum game. On the other side, Alex deeply cares about control and optionality and being in charge of his own destiny. And he's been anti-VC from, from the beginning because also seeing, we see it through the guts of thousands of companies. So we know when things are, when things are great, you hear about the stories. You don't hear about the stories where things go bad. Yeah. So Alex was against it. And, and so then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, we got paranoid. Two reasons we got paranoid. One, our biggest growth channel, which was hosting events, just died. We used to host a lot of meetups, in-person meetups. We had a conference, our conference attended by thousands of people. And then during the pandemic, there was one open window. I think it was in June of 2020, where they started to open up events. And we hosted an in-person event. And we did a VC panel. And through some introduction, the Radiant folks came. They met a lot of great people. One of the and partners. Radiant, we should add, are they a venture capital fund, a private equity fund? What, how would you characterize them? So Radiant Capital is a growth equity firm, fund. A growth equity is a mix of VC and private equity. So usually if founders are in that 5 to 15 million in annual recurring revenue range, largely bootstrapped, there's another path. You don't have to sell your whole company and go the PE route, which is usually reserved for much larger companies. Or you don't have to play the zero-sum game and go the venture route. Growth equity lets you liquidate some of your stock while still maintaining a good stake in your company. How much did you guys sell? So we sold touch over majority. So like touch over 50% just to tip the scale in their favor. So you and Alex both pushed in total... Over yeah. 50% of your over share 50. into the deal. Exactly. And, and okay, so walk me through that. You have them at the conference and 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 did they sort of like approach you and say, what's... That's what precisely that's precisely what happened. Now, because of the pandemic, you know, we, we're doing all these webinars. We're everywhere. Now, Boast is like getting hundreds of people come to our webinars with big name CEOs. We started getting hit up by other VCs as well. Oh, we're seeing you everywhere. We're seeing you everywhere. So these guys come to our event not knowing that, you know, our, our event's called Traction. It's not called the Boast event. Not knowing who hosts this, they asked like, hey, who hosts this? And I got in touch with one of the partners, with the CEO of the fund or the founder. And he basically asked me to join their venture partner network. Hey, refer us deal flow. You have a massive community. We'll give you carry in the deals we get. And I'm like, listen, man, I'd love to do that, but I don't have the time because we have a business to run and it's the pandemic. And he's like, what's your business? So I explain exactly what we do and his mind was blown. You know, up until his mind was blown, I had never thought of it as like a business that anyone would want to buy a stake in, although we get hit up by investors all the time. What but was you know, it that made him, what, what, what was it that made his eyes light up when you described the business? 
I, basically, he's like, what do you guys do? I, I said, hey, there's hundreds of billions of dollars given in R&D credits to fund businesses. It's a manual cumbersome process that's done by big four accounting firms who chew up a lot of your time and take a lot in fees. We automate that process. We remove data automatically from your technical systems and financial systems. We file it and we make sure you get the money faster than the government would pay you. And we take a percentage for it. And he's like, what? And, and how does it grow? I'm like, every year they spend more money in R&D as a function. We get paid more. And, uh, his, and, and, I, and we use these traction events, like how you came to us. We use these traction events to do demand generation. And our BD guys are just uh, are more like community managers. And, and when they make calls, people are already familiar with our name. And he's like, so tell me, you're selling like a $100 bill for $15, $15, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. And he was lit up. And then he's like, man, I'd love to invest in the business. And, you know, in my head is ringing. Alex is like, don't ever give up control. We don't want VC money. And my wife's like, listen, if you do somebody else's zero-sum game, you're getting a job at like Oracle. Like that is, that is the death of an entrepreneur, get a job at Oracle. You're like between a rock and a hard base. Like <laughs> exactly, right? And my 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 wife and Alex are like almost one. It's like I I work married the same person I personally married. Like they're very similar. Yeah. And and yeah. and and so I'm between a rock and a hard place and he's like, "No, let me explain what we are. We're not a traditional VC. We're growth equity." I'm like, "What? What is growth equity?" I'm like, "Aren't you just like PE guys masquerading as VCs? What's going on?" Then he explained it to me. And the shoe dropped for me when he said, you know what? We don't have to make this capital go on the balance sheet. You can take a huge chunk of it and de-risk yourself. And I'm like, I had to pinch myself. I'm like, what? This is true? This happens? And he's like, yes. And he explained to me. And then we had a, he had a partner in San Francisco. And I met that partner in person. And that uh, he explained to me. And then I told Alex about it. And Alex is like, yes, this is legit. It makes sense. Now, Alex is a strong legal mind as a function of him like he's very well read he's very well researched he's he's like he's like the nuts and bolts that makes the stuff happen i am i am the bouncing off the walls the face of the company kind of guy so alex verified he's like this is legit we back channeled some references for deals they had done and and anyway like the partners had worked at bain so it was a fun like sort of spun out of bain in a way so they had good credibility so we're like this is real we could be we could be rich let me just let me, okay. So let me, let me just pause there and make sure everybody's following along. So with a venture capital deal, you can raise some money, but that money is not for your genes unless there's something called a secondary, which is usually pretty modest. They want to keep the entrepreneur super hungry, right? So maybe a hundred, a couple hundred thousand dollars to pay off something short term, but really they want you to sort of be very hungry. Whereas with growth equity. What you're saying is that they're going to buy a chunk of your business and, and you can actually take that money More and put you, it in your pocket, not necessarily reinvest it in your company. Am I getting that correct? That is correct. And that was mostly Alex's criteria. We have built a profitable business with a clean cap table, with good gross margins and net profits. The money can't go to the balance sheet. We spent so many years building this blood, sweat and tears. The only way to trade a spot on my cap table is if the money is not going into the bank, into the balance sheet, it's going in my personal bank account. And wait, pretty, give me the numbers at this point, revenue, profitability, where are you guys at? We were when the, we were five-ish and I didn't realize, but we closed the year with 10-ish. So that growth happened really fast. 
uh, in that time. So about to- five, five million with direct line of sight end of the year to like almost 10 million. And, and that's revenue? That, that's, that's annual recurring revenue, yes. Got it. And then what would profitability be on that ballpark? You know, so when we got to 10, we were like maybe between 30 and 40 people. It's been a couple of years. I can't remember. We were very lean. We didn't even have a marketing person on the team. So I would say we were north of 30% net profit. Net got profit, it. not even gross margin. Yeah, this is net profit. So we're a profitable yeah, yeah, company. Yeah. This so is 30, 30 40% net, net profit. So we're humming. And so when you're humming like that, you're, you're already doing this math. You're like, why do I need somebody else's capital? We freaking bust our balls and squeezed ourselves, blood, sweat, and tears to finally get to a point where we can take meaningful money from the company. Now somebody wants to buy a chunk of it. Why give up that control if, the, if, if it's not translating into meaningfully de-risking us, right? And so that was yeah. the consideration. Why? Like, I mean, a company that, was, that did almost 10 million or touch or just on the, like it was a company doing eight figures in revenue at like 40-ish percent um, net profit, if you keep running it, it's lots of money. So then mm-hmm. why, would, why would you do a deal like that? Only two reasons. One, the pandemic happened and we're early in the pandemic and we knew how we hustled to get customers, do events. Like even I was manually editing videos and every, everyone was all hands on deck. So this brings some calm to the personal life. We didn't know where this pandemic would go. So one, it de-risks us. Two, it gives us enough stake in the company and puts a little bit of money and expertise to the company's board and balance sheet. So now you can play the long game, right? Because a lot of the times what happens is founders, we burn out, man, especially as bootstrap. You know this, you've seen this all the time. You burn out, you get de-energized, bills come up, family happens, kids grow up, and you realize, man, I've been working in the business, running, 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 and I miss like my kids. That was the case with me. My kids, I had no relationship with my kids. So that was, you know, I had none. Like my, my I had two kids prior and uh, my kids would always say, dad, you're always working. We never see you. We never see you. We never see you. So that was, that was one of the other things. You burn out, no time for family when you're bootstrapping. Now this brings some calm. You've de-risked. They've put some money on the balance sheet so you can use it to hire people, to create bandwidth for yourself. And things look positive. The other thing as a bootstrap founder is when somebody believes in you like that, to let you de-risk while also helping you play the long game. Now you feel like I have a companion. I have a partner. Now I can play the long game. Otherwise, you're running alone, it feels, right? You need a lot of fortitude to keep running forever. Okay, so let's get into the Radiant deal. So, so you're roughly 5 million, but, but on your way to 10. How did they think about valuation? Like, what was, what did, How did they value the business? So, you know, and maybe we added this part, I'll give you ranges, but generally growth equity firms will want to invest very modestly, right? Because they're liquidating the founders. And generally what they want to do is make five to seven X their investment in five to seven years. That's their MO, right? And the way to value the deal is we you know, is, is looking at that, like revenue, profitability, growth rate. At the time, the market was going 20, 30x, as you know, during the pandemic, it was starting to shift in that direction. But if you see what's happened with that market is a lot of people with one, two, three million in revenue raised at 100x, three, 400 million valuation. 
And now they ran out of money and haven't hit the follow-on growth metrics. Yeah, and if, yeah. they, if they even have to raise a dollar, it's going to be at a massive down round. This happened with one of our competitors that came high flying and, and it wipes out their whole cap table. So they're done. So we, we raised at a very modest valuation. And I would say generally it's in the, it's in the six to 10 X where, what you'll get from uh, a growth equity fund, the average being six, about eight. Right. Six to 10 X ARR annual recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue, eight, like seven to eight being average. So like, if you, if you play that on the seven, 7x ARR, want to return 7x in seven years is a good number, right? So seven, seven, seven. So, so we so you were, were in that ballpark. That we we were we were in that ballpark, and and usually usually depending on where you are in the year, you can negotiate like not current, but four twelve, right? So the market was was heating up. Now the market it is a point where it's a it's a it's an investor's market, so. The public markets are trading at four to six, so you'd be lucky to get four to six, right? Yeah. So you you so let me get this straight. So you talked that you're at five, you're going to ten. You you kind of go back and forth on the valuation at somewhere in the six to ten ARR, and I, I appreciate. Uh, perhaps can't say specifically what it was, and I, I totally appreciate that. What was the what were what were the deal terms? So they like let's say they value the company uh, just for hypothetical terms let's just say it was eight so eight times five is 40 uh they're buying half or 50 a little bit more than 50 so they write you a check for 20 let's say just again this is hypothetical not not necessarily the real numbers but if they write you a check for uh for 20 is that what i said five yeah you said you said 20 40 and then so 20 would get you more than half the equity do you and Lloyd just divide the 20 in half and put it in your jeans? Or is there some expectation that part of the 20 is put on the balance sheet? There was, so we were very profitable. So we maximized what went to me and Alex and uh, one early employee who was uh, there with us from the beginning. So you didn't have to put in, like it wasn't a requirement of the investment. That you there, was, there, was, there was a little amount to go on the ba- balance sheet. How do you know what proportion of the of the funds of of in this hypothetical example the twenty million you you have to keep in the company versus put in your jeans? Like what 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 are the words they use in the? It was the it was all it was all negotiation, right? They make an offer, um, they make an offer for how much money off the table. Obviously, like part of negotiation is you do the math on what works for you, and if you're on the upside based on how much money you're going to make as a company, right? Then you just say, you know what? That doesn't work for me, right? And yeah. Alex is a great negotiator. So we, we doubled that. <laughs> so I'm curious about the actual vocabulary though. Like I've heard VCs refer to it as a secondary. It is. Yeah. So they, they use the word, the terminology used between growth equity and VC is very similar, right? So they'll say okay. secondary. They'll say secondary, right? Or money off the table, whatever it is. Like, I think we use the term secondary a lot. And then there's, of course, due diligence, technical due diligence, financial due diligence, customer interviews, back channel conversations. That due diligence went from a 30-day term sheet to like, you know, it was a 30-day close, but we were a bootstrap company with not many uh, buttoned up systems. So it ended up being like probably like a two, like a 60, 70-day close. I want to get to the due diligence uh, book. I, I just want to understand the deal. So there was this 
um, th- this this cash paid uh, basically they, they 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 value the company. They yeah. made an offer for funding, right? Yeah. And we negotiated on what goes in the balance sheet and how much we take off the table. Then there yeah. were a set of terms we negotiated, which is very helpful because Alex comes from you know a legal. He's very strong legally, given his wife's a corporate lawyer yeah. as well. And so we optimize for things like control. We optimize for things like two board seats, right? We optimize for things like um, dilution rights, right? Like liquidation preferences. So yeah, very- so those are all things. Yeah. So when you say you optimized for those things, you got two board seats. You could influence the direction of the company. Exactly. How many board members were there? There were two of them, two of us, and then a tiebreaker, so fifth board member. So we're still five board members. Got it. Okay. So there's there's that. So you've got influence over the final, but you don't have full control. So the preferred shareholders are are the investors. We got common, but it, the liquidation preference was one x. It, it was all clean. Basically, there was no like you know full ratchet drag along. None of that stuff. Like it was it was very clean. In fact, Alex took. The agreement, and I think provided an agreement from our starting point, and they were very generous and and, uh, and gracious in accepting most of them. And so we maintain two board seats. Um, and do you continue to hold that 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 portion of equity that you didn't sell to Radiant to this day? Yeah, we hold more or less of it. Um, we gave a bunch in stock options. We brought in a professional CEO as a CEO as well. Got it. Got it. Okay. How was that experience for you uh, bringing in a professional CEO? You know, initially, uh, I, I think what happens is everyone sees the rosy picture, right? Could I, John, could I pause for one second? Yeah, Real for quick. sure. Yeah, so the one thing that everyone talks about is the TechCrunch ar- article, the rosy picture, and all the, all the wonderful things that do happen. But what people don't realize, and you may have seen this in the hundreds of thousands of interviews you do, is no matter how good the financial outcome is, leaving a company you started that you sacrificed your family for is fraught with mental health issues. So after that deal happened, you know, we got so busy with the due diligence that I neglected my family completely. And my wife would say all the time, like, you're not spending any time with us. You've gotten so bad. You've gotten worse during this pandemic. And I'm like, listen, we're in the middle of a due diligence. Let the deal come through and we'll, I'll take everyone to Bora Bora, right? We'll take everyone to Bora Bora. My family, my sister, my parents will go to Bora Bora. The deal happened. And, and you know what's, what's even funnier is for the last 10 years, I'd be telling my wife that uh, I'm going to retire at 40, okay? I'd been telling her this every single day from, from when we got married, right? Our, like, her parents weren't fans of me because she, she's a bright doctor. She got into medical school in second year of undergrad without MCATs. I was a bumbling idiot. You can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, I was a bumbling idiot, startup to startup. So I, so I, so I kept telling her, I'm going to retire at 40. I'm going to retire at 40. I kid you not. This was the summer. And she's, I, I would still say it. We, we hadn't even had the conversation with Radiant and I'd still say it. And she's like, I don't know how it's happening. 
the wire hit my bank the week of my 40th birthday. Everyone around me had goosebumps, okay? This was, this was the, the craziest thing. Everyone around me had goosebumps. And then we booked everyone to Bora Bora. Two days before the Bora Bora trip, I got hospitalized with COVID. I got bilateral COVID pneumonia. It was the time of Omicron. My lungs were shot. I wake up one morning unable to breathe. The Bora Bora trip never happened. Now I'm in the hospital because it's it's high uh, sort of high contagion time. We nobody's allowed to see me in the hospital. The people are wearing spacesuits and walking in the hospital, and uh, and they set up a twenty four seven Zoom. They set up a 24-7 Zoom. All I'm hearing is people crying in the Zoom, my parents, and I'm freaking out, right? Your heart rate goes down, your oxygen capacity goes down, you get delirious. And I sit there in the hospital and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? Like my wife's words were ringing constantly in my head, wake up, stop and smell the roses. And I, I said to myself, this money means nothing if I died today. I didn't spend any time with the kids. I literally didn't spend any time with the kids. And that just ate me alive at the time I was in the hospital. Now, obviously, investors have also freaked out. You invested in the company where the face of the company is going to tap out. We invested in both of the founders. One guy is the face of the company. Single point of failure. I, I used to run all the big partnership deals. I was the face of the community. All the pro I used to run product. Basically, I was a single point of failure. It's the things that Warren Buffett says: don't invest in companies where you have one single point of failure. Now I'm running product. I'm running marketing. I'm running partnerships, and um, and it was. I think the, there was like this little moment of chaos, and so came back from the hospital, and all of a sudden I find myself in the middle of this chaos. Now the company has gone from forty-ish, thirty, forty-ish people to now we're hiring rapidly right? Um, I've been told numerous times that I'm a single point of failure. So of course, we need to find a chief product officer, find a CMO, find replace my functions, basically. And my eight-year-old comes to me and she's like, dad, you've gotten worse. You've gotten worse. You promised to spend more time with us. You've gotten worse. And I'm like, we went from 30, 40-ish people to over 100 people. We got to make sure we do right by them. And she's like, dad, why don't you go and work for somebody who thinks like you so I can have my dad back? <laughs> and I still didn't learn. I still didn't learn. A couple of weeks later, we're in an offsite in, in Austin, me and my co-founder. My phone is always down when I'm in meetings. My, many, many hours later, I pick up the phone and I had like 20 missed calls. It was my wife's best friend. And she's like, you're such an asshole. You always do this. Your wife's in labor for a third kid. So it's the third time now my wife's in labor. And I'm not at home. And I had to take the next flight, which was the next morning. And I barely made it to the birth of my, my, my third kid, my son. And at the same time, all this stress now, imagine, went from this high of, of coming into money, going from piss poor. And I think one of the first thing I did when I came into money was my parents, behind unknown to me, had put a down payment on our house because we couldn't afford to pay rent when, when things were hard. They put a down payment on the house and they're like, at least you're paying towards the mortgage. The first thing I did was I wired the money <laughs> to their bank because, because they didn't tell me when they were putting this down payment, they, they gave it to my wife. So the, I, I, like, you know, I, I wanted to make people whole. And then I said, well, book the Bora Bora trip, which never happened, got COVID, 
went into this like now hiring lots of people, trying to make sense of it, right? A company that was largely bootstrapped now has new partners adding. Imagine adding like 80, 90 people in a span of eight, nine months. It's crazy. I can't imagine. It's it's insane. And we brought in like- Just to be clear, did Radian, in addition to giving you and Alex a bunch of cash, did they also put additional money on the balance sheet to fund that growth? I know you said there was a little bit. There was a there was a little bit of capital to fund that growth, and plus we were also profitable. So so, okay, the so you were pouring all that money back into the into the company because it's it's generating revenue. One dollar turns into two, turns into three, so it made sense. That's a, that's actually an interesting question. So with the growth equity round. Um, before you sold a portion of your business to Radian, you and Alex were the owners. The business was generating five on the way to 10 and very profitable. So were you pulling cash out of the business in the form of dividends prior to Radian? Very, very little because we were reinvesting um, everything in. We were reinvesting everything in, right? And okay. that, was, that was the thing. We were, we were reinvesting back in the business and so that was the that was the that was the thing okay and then as part of the and again this is my naivete coming through or ignorance about about growth equity but when a growth equity player invests does does that limit yeah it would because they were now the majority shareholder I'm, i'm trying to think of like could you and alex started to pay yourself dividends that would have presumably been vetoed by the majority of the board because there's three and no, you, you, we couldn't because when we when we did that deal and a function of us uh, taking that much secondary was we're signing up for a big outcome. Now the goal mm-hmm. is now the goal is let's go full throttle. Let's we've de-risked ourselves, so we don't need the money. Paid more taxes than we needed to anyway. Um, let's let's grow the business. Let's be all hands on deck. And now grow this thing from 10 to 50, right? In the next yeah. five, grow, grow five to seven X in the next five to uh, seven years, right? And you say you, say you couldn't because you, you had signed up to grow the thing, you de-risk. I'm just curious, I'm just wondering, is that you couldn't, um, a legal commitment or a moral commitment? I understand it's a moral commitment. Like you don't take Radiant Capital's money and, and, then, it, and then start it, it's harming a, up. It's a is moral commitment. I mean, you can pay yourself whatever, but there's a board, right? And when there's a board, and they've got it, yeah, yeah, the board, the co- the comp, there's a board, and when there's a board, there's a compensation committee, and things get need to get approved by the board. So you can't just make away with with the, with the cash that comes in, right? Got it. And again, you you had a board structure so that you had important influence, two of the five seats, but not control, so you couldn't just pay yourself dividends whatever whenever you want. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot more sense, and and that's starting. I'm starting to again, more educated about this growth equity stuff, but it allowed you to put some money in your jeans and swing for the fences, which you did. Yeah, definitely. Yes. So it allows you to de-risk yourself while still playing the long game, right? And so now the goal is like, hey, we were 10 a couple of years ago. Let's, can we grow to 50? Can we grow this thing to 100? I very well think we can. And then the company also evolved, right? So, so looking at that journey, the vision was enabling innovators to become successful, enable, enabling innovators to change the world by giving them the money to fund their R&D and by giving them the know-how to accelerate their R&D. So how the product went was 
doing the tax credit claims manually to then doing it automatically, then saying, why do you need to wait for the money? We'll give you the money now. And then now the next set of products is we have your technical data and we have your financial data. Now we can give you a unique set of analytics that nobody does, who you should hire, what projects you should invest in hmm. to accelerate. So that's the evolution of the product. That is the evolution of the product. So cool. going to an R&D intelligence company. And that's why the gentleman who's the CEO of the company used to be the CTO of Sage Intact, which is trading at 10 plus billion market cap. So we got good hmm. people on the team to shepherd it in the right direction. But so coming back to that incident of, I almost missed the birth of my child, barely made it. I was under a lot of stress. I became this insufferable character because all of a sudden, you know, I realized that I'm a zero to one guy. I couldn't work with big company execs because in my view, I was a very tactical person. I was a generalist. I was a jack of all. And hiring people to hire people to do the job was something I looked down upon. I'm like, why do you need process? Right? Because think about it this way. When you do a deal like this, and if you are heavily bootstrapped and you are hustle mode, imagine our marketing was making its own revenue. That's how hustle and lean we were through doing sure. conferences yeah. and events. Now, all of a sudden, you went to marketing, to investing in ads, to, to head of product, to CTO. You have all of this. And I'm thinking, man, I used to do all those roles. Why do we need to spend all this money? So effectively, as a bootstrap company, as a startup, you're a pirate. You stick elbows. You're pulling punches. You're, you're getting things done. You're executing. You're a pirate. Over time, to be this IPO company, build this $100 million revenue business that eventually becomes a billion-dollar company, you need to transition to being a Navy. I wasn't ready to make that journey because I had... Think about my experience graduating from being that cold caller after engineering. I only ever worked at startups that never made it. None of the startups I worked at ever hit the revenue that we did. So I was, that was my habit. That was, that was I guess my muscle memory is, is sticking elbows and, and poking fingers to get the job done. Hustle by any means possible. And now I started seeing these Navy people coming in from big companies and they had a certain process. And all I saw was, oh man, too much process, too many slide decks too much written down stuff and, and execution is going down, right? And I started to see, and I, I started to uh, bicker and banter with them. I became insufferable, basically. I, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the reality. No matter how good the financial outcome for a founder is, if you've sacrificed your life and your family and you've built your identity around this company, you're gonna be insufferable. It's fraught with mental health issues. And there is a saying by Osho, which goes, all of our troubles, all of our worries are nothing but attachment. I was too attached. And so I ended up in one board meeting where I, I, <laughs> I just pitched firing all the execs. <laughs> I pitched firing. I'm like, should fire all of them and all of this stuff. And, and the board director was, listen, you've had a very difficult year. You've had a very difficult year. You went from going, you know, pandemic, growing the business, the due diligence, to then almost dying of COVID, now hiring so many people. Um, and you just had a baby. Why don't you take a paternity leave? And in six months, we'll figure out a role for you. When you tell a founder that, the writing's on the wall, right? So that day I go home and I hug my wife for like 10 minutes straight. And I just weep like a little baby. I just cry, man. I cry my eyes out. Um, and I let every emotion of the last many years just pass. And I then say, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize for every time 
you needed me and I put the business first. Every family event, every vacation, every trip, every kid's activity, I put the business first. Today, the business doesn't need me and you're the only person left standing. And, uh, and you know, despite having all that money, the journey after that was I got drunk, I became overweight, I got depressed because I felt I all of a sudden lost my tribe. I felt I wasn't good enough. I felt like an imposter. And one day, I think six months had passed, I got drunk, overweight. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a LinkedIn post I made about this that went viral. My before and after transformation, I was unrecognizable. And she comes. Yeah, to me. I saw the pictures online there. I'll, we'll link up to them in, in builtosol.com. They're great and, and not great, but they are. They show quite a transformation. And and she she looks at me and she's like, "What have you done to yourself?" She's like, "You had a second chance after the COVID experience, and you still haven't learned. If something happens to you." We're the only ones who will be holding the bag, your kids, which you have three of right now. She's like, the glass is half full. You're sitting here moping that you no longer get to fulfill the vision you had started. You're no longer in the company. When you're in a position to pick up and move anywhere in the world, people would die to be in this position. And so she's like, you got to pick yourself up and change a few things if you want to be able to live, play the long game. Life and business is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that day, incidentally, I was having lunch with the president of Atlassian, Anu. And she told me, and this company is worth $40 billion now, one of the most valued SaaS companies. And she's been a longstanding traction speaker. So we're having lunch and she says, hey, you know, I wanted to quit Atlassian. After 15 years of burnout, I went into hand in my resignation and, and the CEO said, don't quit. Take the time off you need. And so she took a sabbatical, went stargazing in Tacoma Desert, did animal rehabilitation, things that were fun for her. And she came back energized and ended up becoming the president of this $40 billion company. And she said, self-care is never selfish. It's good stewardship towards the only way you can create value in the world. Take the time off. My other mentor, Jason Lemkin, um, founder of Saster, said the same thing. Just go away for six months. Just take a break. And that night, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep, right? All these things are echoing in my head. In the corner of my room, I see my Peloton bike. You know, the, <laughs> sure. the bike had turned into a makeshift towel rack. There was so, much, so many clothes in there that was unrecognizable, right? It, it becomes, again, you don't even pay attention to something. It's like a chair. It's like a piece of furniture. So I remove the clothes from it and all the, all the crap on it. And I hop on, pick the ride, pick this instructor, never forget her name, Robin Arzone. She was coming off maternity, postpartum lows, couldn't ride as well. And she was saying, oh, I don't feel as strong. I used to be able to go as fast and, and at this resistance and, and, and speed. And I can't, I feel like crap I'm coming up. I feel miserable. And then she just screams out, self-pity is toxic. You don't need that shit. One crank, one shift, one walk around the block. I am, I can. It starts with one. And the eye of the tiger from the Rocky Balboa movie was playing in the background. <laughs> Those 20 minutes went like 20 seconds. I felt instant connection to her because I was coming from pain as was she. The riders were high-fiving me. The streaks were calculated. One ride turned into two, two turned into four. And next thing you know, combined with my wife's, the glass is always half full, turned into a ritual. Wake up, 
thank the good that happened in my life the day before, bang out as many push-ups to Eye of the Tiger, hop on the Peloton, and my journey to transformation happened. But the one thing that occurred to me was, it was the environment that I was in that played a big, big part, right? So you're in Silicon Valley. Everyone around you is a founder, an entrepreneur, a VC. Selling 50 some odd percent to a growth equity firm and having a cash outcome may be good for you personally, right? It like de-risks you. You came from being pissed for It's money that you've not seen or won't see in, in a couple of generations. It's life-changing money. But for most people around you, it's chump change, right? Or so that is the aura of the Silicon Valley unicorn porn. And so more and more people I talk to is like, oh, why did you have to do this? You should have played the long game. You could have built a unicorn. I'm like, I could still own, me and Alex still own close to 40% of the company. We can still, but like, you know, it was frowned upon and that was eating at me too. That's what my wife said, like change the environment. You know, you're doing all this meditation, medication, fitness, diet, health. But it's like a coping mechanism to some trauma that's holding you back. And until you're in this place, because this has been your whole career working for startups in Silicon Valley, let's eject. Let's go somewhere where people think about life and work very differently. And we had a lot of families. So me and her were both refugees of the Gulf War in Kuwait. A lot of her friends had ended up moving to Dubai. Dubai is like a safe country, safe city, perfect mix of Miami meets Mumbai. And, and it's like... Disneyland for adults. It's like the Truman Show. Nobody talks about bad news. Everything is done for you. Everything is delivered to you. Everything from your doctor to your Cairo to every help you need, cook, driver, everything is taken care of for you. And it's a fraction of what you would pay in Toronto or Silicon Valley or Vancouver. So we end up moving to Dubai. And, uh, you know, that changed my perspective on life because nobody cares about your unicorn and nobody cares about what you do. And made new friends, rekindled with childhood friends, rekindled with a lot of cousins, a lot of relatives, and got re-energized. And in that time that I was there, I realized that, hey, man, like this American dream, we spend all our time working, right? Uh, Work maybe 60, 80 hours a week. Commute an hour early, leave an hour early, come back an hour, stay an hour late, right? Pick, drop kids. And maybe you have just enough energy left after work, staying long hours at work, commuting, because you can never afford to live next to work if you're in the city. And doing all these chores, you have just enough energy to have a nice dinner on a weekend with some friends. And then Sunday is planning for the rest of the week. You take a big mortgage, right? You, You buy more stuff, take more loans to buy more stuff. And you have just enough money left to have a two-week, one, two-week vacation a year, which you go to like an all-inclusive place and feed into this processed diet. And then what? You retire at 65 and the life expectancy is 78. You retire at 65 and you die at 78. And those 12 years- You're making years, me depressed, your Lloyd. <laughs> and, 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 th- and those 12 years are not functional. They're not functional. So I felt like I'm fortunate at 40 to be able to live the life I wanted to live So why feed into this rat race and try to build somebody else's definition of unicorn? Because that's what everyone knows. So Lloyd, I have to ask. So you you had the the meeting with the board chair. It's like go take some pat leave, get get out of dodge, just you do some self care. What happened 
when you when you were finished that did 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 they say stay home you, you know like we don't need you anymore did you go back into the company like like were you effectively fired if, if you you know if you can use those terms in traditional terms like how did how did that that actually get sort of resolved in the end you know so what ended up happening was like me and Alex were yin and yang with me leaving the day to day first i think you know he wasn't happy there either it, it got twice as stressful and so you know the board came to the consensus that i think uh, you know alex was going to step down as ceo and make room for a new ceo so you both left as day to day and we left we left day to day and and yeah. transitioned to the board alex also moved to dubai with me <laughs> so we lived, mm. we end up living next to each other for that time and and life was good life was great but you know what? I had to go through the journey. And you know what is one thing I tell founders now? When you start a company, great companies, great cultures are built on great alignment. If you're not aligned on values going in, it's always going to cause friction. So one of the most important things to write down is what is your personal definition of success? How much money you want in the bank account? And is there a version of the company you don't want to work for? These are very important to write down and many founders, they don't write it down, but you're in it to, for some definition of success, right? To make money, to live some life at some point. It's not charity you're doing it. You're not trading like blood, sweat, and tears for charity. You want, a, you want some outcome, write it down. But most founders are shy or bashful to write that down. They feel like, you know, um, they're going to be looked down upon, right? That's not true. You got to write it down. At least you and the co-founders need to write it. So I had written these numbers down, actually, on the insistence of another founder. His name is Jafar Owenadi. He's the founder of this company called Poppy right now, but previously Lupio, which was also acquired by or majority acquired by Growth Equity. Anyway, I wrote these numbers down and I never looked at it. Okay? I had written it in some journal. I kid you not. I found it when we were moving to Dubai. And when I opened that book, um, as we as we moved to Dubai, I was looking through all this stuff that came through the move. My heart sank. My heart sank because whatever happened to me was the universe telling me that it's time to move on. And I fought it. I fought it. Universe, maybe universe giving. I I strongly believe in karma and energy. Uh, universe telling me. Through COVID, it's time to move on. Universe telling me through all the chaos, universe telling me through like, hey, take this paternity leave. And I never listened and I fought it, I fought it. And when I saw that, I became calm. The number I had written down was the number I had written down when I was 28, in my, in my late 20s, right? Hmm. And most people, what happens is they never have enough. If you never have enough, you'll never enjoy life because everything becomes a moving, moving target and yeah. you're chasing you and chasing. Yeah. You, you move it yeah. And I had written down, I don't want to work in a company where I can't be zero to one, where, where like it's big company execs going to scale. I'm always going to be like, I had written forever zero to one. So I'm like, the what Peter was I fighting? Field. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the word I had written forever zero to one. Right. Yeah. And, and I had, and I'd written down a, a cash number and I'd written down personal definition of success. So one, one of the things was I felt like, you know, growing to growing up to immigrant parents um, and marrying a doctor who's very uh, intelligent and educated, I felt like I was never good enough, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so my personal definition of success was respect from the families. So I hit all mm -hmm. those checkboxes. 
I had the respect. I had, I had, I had the money. And, you know, I, the, there was a version of the company I didn't want to work for. I genuinely wanted to be in a small team, zero to one. And so then I reconciled. It took me moving to Dubai to find that book to reconcile. But I, I kid you not, if I found that book a year ago, I'd probably still fight. Everyone needs to go through their own journey. Failure and hardship needs to teach you the lessons that you already know. And, and well, so sir. I went through that. And so when I ended up in Dubai, I all of a sudden found myself with four or five hours of extra time a day, right? Because now I'm not working. I'm just running the traction community, the podcast and whatnot. But now I'm not doing any chores. We have help at home. Everything is done for you. So I sat down. I'm like, how do I use my time to help people? Like, what do I do? And as I sat and thought very deeply, I'm like, there's one thing that's been very constant in my life. It's the community. I was a refugee of the Gulf War where the security had lapsed and the people in the company, in the country came together to evacuate the country to safety. What is community? Somebody has an aspiration or a goal, looks around, other people team up and a grassroots movement forms to to hit that aspiration or goal or help each other. Every building, this is a time where there were no cell phones. There was no internet. Every building became a sub-community. My dad was an executive chef, so he said, I'll organize food supplies. Somebody said they'll organize security. Somebody says they'll organize like water or cleaning supplies. And then they would communicate with buildings and the word of mouth spread and it became this grassroots movement to evacuate the country to safety. And as we sat on that bus, this rickety bus going from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan to the, to the refugee camp on this highway of death, buses were bombed, people were lying dead. I look around the bus, I may have been like an eight or nine-year-old. All I could see was adults, like my parents, my uncles, everyone, singing and laughing and playing the guitar. <laughs> and I said, I said to myself that day, it's, it's neither the destination nor the journey. It's the companions that matter the most. You could be on a shitty journey on the way to hell, but great companions make it memorable. Your companions can make you feel like a rock star, no matter where you are, or can make you feel like a peasant, even if you have tens of millions of dollars. So that was realization number one. When we bootstrap boast, we leverage the community. We build those pizza nights that turn into attraction community to, mm -hmm. to bootstrap to 10 million with no marketing person. Then when I got depressed and I had hit rock bottom, it was the Peloton community that brought me back to good health. And I said, what could I do is why don't I write a book chronicling the journey of communities and why every founder and every company needs to build a community of its own. It can not only be your best word of mouth channel and customer service channel, validation, your best brand builder, but it can be your tribe, right? Brands of yesterday were built on what they told the world about themselves. Brands of the future will be built on what the community says about them. If you look at it, yesterday's innovation is always today's option and tomorrow's commodity, right? The GPS, you couldn't get your hands on it. Then it became an option in the car. Now you have CarPlay. It's a commodity. It's everywhere. Yeah. But, but communities can never be commoditized. And the, the book, From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules for Building Iconic Brands Through Community. Am I getting the name correct? 
Right, exactly. 13 rules to build iconic brands with community-led growth. I'm everything I am because of community. Community is how we met the investors. They came to an event and, you know, yeah. luck, luck was engineered. You know, I, I truly, a lot of people say, oh, we're self-made. Luck and risk are two sides of the same coin, right? And if, <laughs> if they didn't coincidentally happen to come to that event and that deal didn't happen exactly when it happened, if we waited for May 2022 when everything crashed, we wouldn't even get a penny. So luck plays a huge part of it, right? So the best thing you can do is put out good energy and good karma out there, help people, pay it forward, be there for the community, build a community, and, and luck will find its way to you, is, is what well, I say. Well, you've certainly paid it forward today, uh, Lloyd. Um, we will put the book, uh, a link to pre-order in the show notes at builttosell.com. You also have a very vibrant uh, YouTube channel, a podcast, Traction is the name. Uh, where else can people connect with you on social? What's the best place to learn more about you? Definitely. I'm, I'm, LinkedIn is my home. I'm not on any other. So I recently signed up for an Insta. I'm not active on it. I use LinkedIn for personal, professional. I share my, my life is an open book, like from my mental health journey to bootstrapping to building community, to fitness journey. I share it all on LinkedIn. My name is spelled differently. It's Lloyd with an E, so double L-O-Y-E-D, Lobo. So search that on LinkedIn, add me or follow me and my DMs are open. So I'm, I'm, I'm an open book and happy to help. And then on the podcast, just search on Spotify or Apple, Traction Podcast, and, and you'll find me. And on YouTube, search Traction Conference and you'll find us. And that's the way to... Uh, to stay in touch. And, you know, I truly believe in paying it forward and giving, and, and I want to leave people with this. If you help enough people get what they want, you'll get everything you want. It's a quote by Zig Ziglar. But before I even knew Zig Ziglar even existed, my mom grew up in the slums of India in Mumbai. With, they made a movie on it, Slumdog Millionaire. And she had nine siblings. And every time I'd go there to visit in the summers, I tell my grandfather, like, you got 10 kids, but you have some random strangers staying in the house. Why is that? Mumbai is the New York City of India. So, you know, people from villages and whatnot to make it would, would come to Mumbai and inevitably some friend or distant relative would find his place in my grandfather's house. And my grandfather would always say, the only way to create abundance in your life is to give without expecting anything in return. So I think that DNA of community was imbibed in all of us. Today, obviously, none of his kids are, are in that slum in Mumbai. Everyone is well off. And I am reaping the karma created by that great man. And so all I can say is that the only way to create abundance in life is to help people without expecting anything in return. Gratitude is, is the lottery ticket there. Well said, Lloyd, and we'll edit there. Uh, we will put uh, Lloyd's LinkedIn profile, everything traction related, the book in the show notes at builttosell.com. Lloyd, appreciate you doing it. Awesome, man. Take care. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Lloyd. If you enjoyed today's podcast, and as always, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, that I would encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel where you can find us at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video podcast for today's episode. If you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I'd encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have the chance to leave a rating 
and review. Ratings and reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more business owners just like you. If you know someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. You can head over to builttocell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have a chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, you can visit Lloyd's episode page over at builttocell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagla for handling today's audio engineering And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 